My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give participants in a wide range of social change work a chance to take a longer view as they talk about what they do, how they do it, and why they do it. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Mina Ramos and Max Scott. Most of us who are citizens know next to nothing about how Canada's immigration system actually works. We do not know about the arcane rules, the complicated and arbitrary categories, the shoddy process, or what for many is harsh and oppressive treatment. What we are most likely to hear about often reinforces and certainly solicits sentiments that dehumanize migrants. It is no surprise, then, that many of us are unaware that administrative detention, that is, imprisonment not as punishment for a guilty verdict to a criminal conviction, but as a result of an administrative process, is an integral part of how it works in certain cases, or that such detention often happens under far worse conditions than are standard in federal prisons. Starting in mid-September, almost 200 detainees at a facility in the southern Ontario town of Lindsay began to resist using various forms of non-cooperation that are collectively being talked of as a strike. Initially their demands focused on immediate conditions, but have now shifted to include the fact that Canada allows itself to keep migrants in detention indefinitely, for years at a time in many instances, which is a violation of international law and is in sharp contrast to the 90-day maximum in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Mina Ramos and Max Scott are migrant justice organizers who have been providing support on the outside to the striking detainees. They talk about the strike, the conditions that detainees are resisting, and the ways that all of us can act in support. I spoke with them using Skype to phone, Ramos from Guelph, Ontario, and Scott from Toronto. Please note that this interview was recorded on October 15th. There have been moments in the month and more of the strike so far where the situation has changed very rapidly, so please consult the website endimmigrationdetention.wordpress.com for the latest details. My name is Mina Ramos. I'm from Guelph, Ontario, and I work with an organization, a very small organization called Forza Porta, and we are a very broad migrant justice organization. Um, in the past, we've mainly focused on temporary foreign workers, concentrated in Guelph, Leamington, Simcoe, and Virgil area, but I've been also taken on a central role in this coalition that we formed surrounding the immigration detainees in taking trap calls and going to go visit detainees and updating folks on, on what their needs are and what they're asking for and what's going on inside of the correctional facility in Lindsay right now. I'm MacDonald Scott. I work for a law firm called Carenza LLP. It's probably Toronto's largest multi-ethnic firm. And I also work with a group called No One is Illegal which is a migrant justice group in Toronto that's been around for about 11 years now, mainly working around regularization of non-status immigrants, but also against detentions and deportations. Give me a sense of the experience of detention, as you've heard about it from the people who were detained. Canada Border Services Agency, which is like immigration enforcement, can detain people for the purposes of removal if a board member, which is sort of like a pseudo-judge, decides that they're either not likely to show up for removal or they're a danger to the public or that they can't be properly identified. However, what happens is there's three parties to a removal. There's the detainee, 
there's the Canadian government, and then there's the government of the country that's receiving them. And a lot of countries don't want to receive people back, especially where the people have been either out of the country a long time, which a lot of these folks have, or where they have some kind of criminal history. And those people can end up being held years. About a month or two ago, they started the process of shutting down the Toronto West Detention Centre and the Don Jail, and they moved all those folks into Lindsay. So at this point right now, Lindsay holds basically every male being held for removal who has any reason that they need to be held in a provincial facility. Now, we've tried to get their policies over how they decide who gets held in those facilities. They've so far said that they don't have a policy, though we're still working on it. But generally, it tends to be anybody who has any kind of criminal history, and that can be as much as an arrest in resulting conviction, or in, I've had clients held in provincial facilities because they swore at the officer when they're being arrested. So I had a client who was in Lindsay who was being held in a federal institution on manslaughter conviction. And it's important to know the history of the federal institutions in this country. Federal jails have been sites of struggle for over 30, 40 years. We have a National Prisoner Justice Day every August that celebrates a famous strike that happened in the 70s. Indigenous prisoners have access to spiritual ceremonies and to sweat lodges inside due to struggle. So he was in a federal facility. In that facility, he could work. He went to school. He got all the food that he needed to eat to survive, to be well-fed. He was well-respected. He was put in charge of dealing with disputes between inmates and the guards. And it was, in the large, for jail, a pretty positive experience. Then he gets put on immigration hold. He gets put in a provincial facility. None of that stuff exists. He doesn't get enough food to eat, even when they're getting the full three meals a day. He has a commissary cart that comes, I think, once a week and has barely anything in it. The library is a cart that has a few ripped-up old paperbacks. There's hardly any work available, and they don't give it to the immigration detainees anyways. He's now being held in a, what's known as a remand facility. So that's a provincial facility, which is supposed to be short-term. It's supposed to hold people until trial, partially as a result of that and also partially as a result that the provincial facilities haven't experienced the same history of struggle. They don't have any of the programs that the federal facilities have. So basically, now that he's no longer being punished, not that I believe in a punitive criminal justice system, He's just being held on administrative law for the purposes of removing him from Canada. He's being held in 10 times worse conditions than he was being held in when he was being punished for manslaughter. It's ridiculous. Even the Toronto Immigration Holding Centre, which is a much nicer facility where you get held if you're not being held in a provincial facility, they rarely have access to culturally appropriate food. They don't have access in the provincial facilities or the TIHC to culturally relevant spiritual practices. They have inadequate food. They have no programs. It's actually worse than the federal facilities that our system sends people to to be punished. The individuals that I've spoken to echo the same thing that Mac was saying, and it's important to remember that being held as uh, immigration detainee is actually not a criminal charge, but the majority of these people are actually being held in maximum security. So it's important to remember that. Some of the situations that people are facing is what Mac was saying, you know, they're getting different foods, so food with no meat, food that is kind of rotting or wilting, so kind of secondhand food. And also one big thing that has been repeated over and over again is the medical staff is just not present at all. Right now what's going on in Lindsay is that a lot of individuals who need really, really serious medical attention are just not getting it. I spoke to an individual the other day who has a cyst in his head, and he's been being given Tylenol 
by the nurses. He's not able to go to a hospital. He hasn't been examined by a doctor at all. And he's saying that he can basically not get up because of this cyst in his head is giving him such big headaches and migraines and he has no idea what's going on. Another individual that we spoke to actually has lung cancer. He's been an immigration detainee for the past three years and is dying of lung cancer and they just refuse to take him to a hospital. That's a huge issue, not able to receive medical attention when you need medical attention. Also, these conditions break international law. The United Nations has made very clear recommendations on how people can be held, and they're not supposed to be held like this. Give me a, a sense of the people that are being detained. We've gotten in contact with over 20 immigration detainees who are in Lindsay, which is a lot given all the drop calls that we're receiving. The rhetoric that's going on in the mainstream media right now is that these people must be illegals, that they're all illegals and they've all jumped the line. And that definitely follows what the Conservative government has put out there in terms of the changes to the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act, all the changes that came with Bill C-31 and also Bill C-10. And that's simply not true. There are people who are coming with false documents, and the reasons behind that is because you just can't get those documents. It is very difficult. Even in my own family, my dad came as a refugee, the rest of my family couldn't come because they couldn't get papers. And so there are a lot of people who fall into that category. But then the majority of people that I've spoken to are permanent residents. They are individuals who came here, quote unquote, legally as refugees received their permanent residence, and have been living in Canada for several years, working, paying taxes, going to school, and basically committed a crime at some point in their lifetime. These crimes could be very small. One individual had committed a small domestic. Another individual had been given a DUI, and now he's Lindsay. So a lot of these crimes are very small. A lot of these individuals have actually served their sentence in jails for their original crime and are now serving a double sentence in Lindsay. So I've talked to some individuals who already spent time in Maplehurst, the West, the Don, and were actually outside of jail. They were once again living their lives, but needing to sign in every day. So a lot of these people were signing in and then given a notice, they call them interviews when they're signing in, that they had failed to comply. So basically that means that you missed an interview. A lot of these individuals that I've spoken to swear that they have not missed an interview, that they have proof that they haven't missed an interview and would like to present that proof in these detention hearings but are not being given the opportunity to present this information. In terms of where they're coming from, a lot of them are coming from very marginalized countries that are experiencing a lot of violent conflict. The majority of individuals that I've talked to are coming from countries like Nigeria, Afghanistan, Iraq, Mexico, Sri Lanka. And so they're coming from very marginalized countries, which is the reason why they originally came as refugees. And the majority are going to be subject to persecution if they are sent back. And we also have to remember that given that these individuals arrived as refugees several years ago, many of them don't have ties to anybody from their home countries from where they came. I just spoke to someone right before you called who is from Sri Lanka who hasn't been there in 20 years. He's been a permanent resident for 20 years. And if he goes back, he can't speak the language. He came here when he was very young. He came as a refugee and then was given to CAS. So he has no family in Sri Lanka. He has no idea where he's going to go, what he's going to do. And we have to remember that when individuals are being deported from a correctional facility, they're not given the time to go home and pick up their belongings. They are deported from the jail. So you're going straight from a jail into this country that you haven't been to for such a long time, and then you have no idea where you're going to go. And that's the situation with a lot of individuals. 
just another point on that. One of the principles of Western law is that you shouldn't be punished twice for the same crime. And that's not happening here. They're getting what's called double jeopardy. They're being punished once, and then they're being punished again while they're being detained for a removal. And just another quick thing on it, when Mia's talking about people not coming with the proper documents, Canada also double punishes people. First, we set it up so if you're coming and you're from the global south, especially if you're poor or working class, we're just not going to give you a visa to come in the first place. And then we're going to turn around and we're going to punish you for coming in so-called illegally. The Tories love to go on about how people jump the queue. Well, I only went to community college. I didn't go to law school. But I don't see how someone can be called a queue jumper when there's no queue to begin with. We need to be clear, other than rare chances where people can come basically as indentured servants under the foreign worker program or the seasonal agricultural program or the live-in caregiver program, there are no lines, there are no doors for poor people, people of color, people from the global south. And then we turn around and we punish them for coming. And, you know, if you're from Europe, if you're white, if you're rich, you're not going to have a problem getting into Canada. We have basically a immigration system that's based on capitalism and colonialism. And then we, when those people do what they need to do to get to Canada, whether to make a better life or to be safe, we punish them. And mm-hmm. it's wrong. It's been very interesting how the mainstream media has responded to these things or what the comments have been, because that is what it's been. It's been a lot of individuals saying, you know, they're, they're cue jumpers or they're illegals or they're bogus refugees. But when you actually look at how complex the system is and how easily you can be made illegal or how difficult it is to get in, you start to realize that the system is made to exclude certain individuals and it becomes very clear that these individuals are poor people coming from marginalized countries, mostly folks of color, and that the immigration is a lot easier for individuals who are upper upper middle class coming from more European countries. And that's a big problem. This Right now, it's, it's interesting that it's being framed that way because this is a historic act, what's happening right now. There have never been as many undocumented people inside of a correctional facility resisting the system speaking up and being like, you know, we're all being held here in contravention of all of these international laws of the UN High Commission of Refugees. They've deemed that this is a problem. And we're rising up and we're saying that this is an issue and we need to be released or there needs to be some sort of policy. And so it's important to remember how inspiring this is, that this is a first. This has not happened where so many people have started to speak up about this and just recognize how big of a problem it is when there is over 200 people who are like, hey, we're serving double sentences. We came here as refugees. Why are we being treated like this? And it shows a very deep flaw within the Canadian immigration system when hundreds of people are inside of a jail cell who came as refugees and are permanent residents or who came with papers because they couldn't get the right papers, right? So just kind of highlighting how big this is, that this is happening at this time. So tell me what you know about the conversations and the organizing that happened inside that led to the initial strike that started in September. About three, four weeks ago, maybe a little longer, the guards went on strike and the conditions, which were already abysmal at Lindsay, got worse. People were on lockdown for the whole day, except for maybe an hour or two. My clients were getting fed twice a day rather than three times a day. They were getting the worst commissary cart. All along, even before the strike, they had no access to phone calls. For a short phone call, it can cost $20, $30. I think, basically, they just got fed up. I have one client in there, but he's quite an organizer. He's the one I was talking about earlier, and he's, he's just he's a natural-born organizer. And I think what happened is people like him and others, and there's a lot of folks in there who have real strong organizing abilities, with the strike going on and the conditions getting even worse than they were, just got fed up. 
Yeah, I think from what I've gotten from the individuals that I've talked to is that it was a few really strong folks who started passing a letter around. It's six ranges, so that's a lot of people to get information across. They wrote a few things down that they didn't agree with, and then they passed it around. And then we're like, do you guys want to do this to start striking? And they, they asked us to focus on the conditions issues, so around access to phone calls, better food, better access to medical and legal services, an end to the lockdowns, and to be moved to jails closer to their families. And they actually won a better commissary card through that first strike. They won the same one that's in the rest of the jail. They got promised a meeting with CBSA, which has not yet happened, and they keep promising to do it. And they got promised that they'd be given a social worker and access through the social worker to cheaper calls, but that hasn't happened either. And as the strike went on, they told us that they wanted to focus more on the fact that many of them were being held basically indefinitely. Now, I have a client who's been in there seven years. Others have been in there eight years. And what they wanted us to focus on was that CBSA either needs to remove them or release them. They shouldn't be holding them these long times. And that's actually pretty much in agreement with international law. The United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, which is part of the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights, has said that countries should have a period that they can hold people, and that if they can't remove them in that period, they should release them. The United Kingdom and the United States both have such a period, being 90 days in both countries. And Canada is just this weird rogue nation that seems to feel that they should be able to hold people for years and years and years to remove them. And then another issue that they've identified is that CBSA has said that the reason why they don't need to put a policy is because they have these detention reviews. Mm. Um, and so basically you get a detention review every 30 days. I mean, it's basically what they've said, a time to present your case. But what we've actually found out is that there's only a 13% success rate of these detention reviews. And after your first detention review, the eligibility for you to be released actually lowers. So people aren't really getting released through these detention reviews, even though CBSA has stated that, well, you know, this is what we have right now. So that's kind of another thing they're saying, that we need to have this policy, but we also need to work on this detention review process that currently exists because it's not working. It's not leading to the releasement of individuals who are currently being detained. And so then it kind of focused on that. Not to say that the other conditions are being met because they're not. Even the example today, like I have had maybe 10 calls this morning, but only four calls have gone through and they've all dropped. So there's still an issue with the phones. There's still no social worker that's dealing with that. But they're kind of pushing for more long-term changes, right? So that the 90-day policy can be there. So the inmates went on strike. I can't remember the exact date, but they went on a hunger strike for one day and refused to enter their cells. What date was that? That was like Three Thursdays ago, wasn't it? Refusing to go in the cells was September 17th. The one-day hunger strike was September 18th. And then the following Monday was when they began their longer-term hunger strike. Right now, I think the main focus has been boycotting the detention reviews and also the hunger strike. From the individuals that I talked to, those are the two strategies that they're taking on right now. And then just a big thing for them is just talking to us calling the trap line and getting stuff out into the media and getting their stories put out there. They've repeated that right now we're their only voice. It does become a situation that's desperate. And right now what's going on is a lot of people are being told that they're going to be deported in the next month. Even last week, six individuals were deported. And that's bringing on a big sense of fear and a big sense of urgency. There's also been situations where 
the prison guards and the wardens have been intimidating individuals inside of the correctional facilities. So, you know, just telling people during the hunger strike, they were like, if you don't start eating, there's going to be problems for you. And that can be really difficult to make that choice when you're on such a thin line of whether you're going to be released or whether you're going to be deported or whether you're going to have to sit in this jail cell for who knows how long. So that definitely has a big effect on people. Another thing is that a lot of people have been put into segregation on and off, depending on what type of strike strategies that they've taken, which can also put a lot of fear into people. No one wants to be in the hole. It's a really crappy place to be. So given those things, the fact that there are still people striking, the fact that there are still people calling us and being like, put my name in the media, put me in the media, write to me, give me visits. You know, the fact that there are still people who are hunger striking. Even today, two individuals who stopped their hunger strike are restarting their hunger strike today is a big deal. And it shows that these issues are bigger than the intimidation that they're facing within the jail. Tell me about the work, the support work, the organizing work that's been going on on the outside to support the detainees. On our part, one of the biggest things has been taking trap calls. We've been recording all the calls and then putting that information out into the media so that people can actually listen to the voices of the detainees versus listening to us reiterating what they're saying. So that's been a big thing. We also had a day of action that seven different cities took part in in all of these different cities. People went to MP offices. Uh, some people went outside of the Lindsay Jail and did a noise demo outside of the jail. So people kind of took on different tactics to get out into the media to say, this is happening and we need people to respond right now. There's also been smaller things like letter writing nights. In Guelph, I know we've had a few letter writing nights where detainees have consented to receive letters just as support because when you're on lockdown all day, you're sitting in your cell. You have no form of entertainment. So it is nice to get letters to kind of know that people are working on the outside, that people are thinking of you. So we've held a few of those smaller support things. What else have we been doing? Mac, can you think of anything else? Through No One Is Legal, I've been representing some of them. And actually, I think what's exciting is we're basically, as the coalition and immigrant detention, I think we're going to be actually making this into an ongoing campaign that we're going to fight it until we win it. On behalf of one client, I'm filing with the United Nations High Commission on Human Rights this week, and that's going to be a big media hit next week. And I think that's going to help continue to kickstart what's going to be an ongoing campaign that we're going to continue until we win. And I'd just like to say, too, is that a lot of the immigration detainees have recognized or have seen the support that is coming from the outside. Apparently, one of the demos from the Day of Action was actually on local television, so they were able to see what is going on. And also, the visit has been a big deal for them, just so we can give them updates in person. I know that when individuals started calling the trap line, there was a lot of uncertainty. I mean, who are you guys? Why should we trust you? We've never met you. Why are you doing this? Um, And now that we've kind of been consistent in answering the trap calls, that they've seen things in the media, that there has been person-to-person visits, they're starting to trust us a lot more, which I think is really important because when you are facing, you know, deportation and you're in indefinite detention, it's good to have someone that you can trust or that you know is working on your case. So that's been a really big thing. And I also forgot to mention that we are keeping in contact with their families. 
So we've been asking them, you know, do your families want to be contacted? Do they want to be involved in events? And we have a huge spreadsheet of family members who do want to be contacted. There actually were family members that came out to the Day of Action in Toronto. The letter writing thing is going to be held by a family member who has been really involved in speaking with the media. And so that's been an important part too, making sure that family members on the outside have facets to get involved and have their voices heard as well. The few family members that I've talked to, they also all have church groups backing them up. Some of them were students at York who are part of different groups that they can kind of hone into. So kind of like networking through those individuals and seeing who can you contact, who can you let know about these situations will also be crucial in kind of the education component of, of this campaign. So what would you say to folks who are hearing this who aren't necessarily already connected to migrant justice organizing and maybe there isn't any of that kind of work happening in their community? How would you suggest they can act in support of the detainees and the campaign? There's a bunch of information on our website, which is endimmigrantdetention.wordpress.com, about letter writing, faxing, phoning. I mean, if you're in a small town and you want to support us, get together some folks from your community organization or your church or your synagogue, your temple, and go visit your local MP. Ask that they bring this up in Parliament. Ask them what their stance is on people being held for eight years to be deported. If you can't go visit, call your MP or call the Minister of Public Safety and Emergency Preparedness. Also, just getting to know migrant service organizations. Almost every small city has a settlement agency. So getting to work with those agencies, finding out what campaigns they're working on. There's national organizations like the uh, Canadian Council for Refugees. They're doing national campaigns. We're doing national campaigns through No One is Illegal. You know, and supporting those struggles in your own community. I completely agree with what you're saying. Like there is this this bigger campaign that we're working on, but every day, you know, in a lot of communities, there are people who are working as migrant workers. There are people who are undocumented and could be facing deportation. So definitely what Mac was saying, getting to know, you know, the settlement organizations that exist in your communities, getting to know if there there are migrant workers uh, that are in your communities and kind of what are the issues. Another thing that folks in Guelph are actually working on formulating a formal petition, so an actual petition that can be used in Parliament. Once we have that up, we can put it up on the website and, you know, people in different communities can print that out and then just use it. Get the signatures. For every page of signatures, your MP has to speak up for half a minute. Half a minute doesn't seem like a long time, but if we can get this circulating to several different cities in Ontario across Canada, that'll mean a lot of MPs speaking up about this. And that's just one small thing. The letter writing, we have maybe 10 or 11 names up on the website for people who have consented to want to receive letters, to want to receive visits. If you're in a position to be close to Lindy and you want to go make a visit, look up the names on the website. Go make a visit, you know, or, or write these folks a letter. Go to your MPs. There are tons of, of really small things that you can do if you don't feel like you have the capacity to do something bigger. You have been listening to my interview with Mina Ramos and Max Scott, migrant justice organizers who have been working to support migrants being held under administrative detention in a facility in Lindsay, Ontario, who have been striking and resisting in various ways over the last month to improve conditions and to end the practice of indefinite detention of migrants in Canada. To learn more about their work, go to the website endimmigrationdetention.wordpress.com. That's all one word, endimmigrationdetention.com. WordPress.com. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, 
or to make suggestions about topics for future shows, go to TalkingRadical.ca and click on the link marked radio. That's TalkingRadical.ca. I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Sudbury, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.